and welcome to the bus stop. This is the official podcast of the National School Transportation Association, and I am Kurt Mackison, Executive Director. And in our membership minute this week, I'm going to give another reminder to everyone about the NSTA midwinter meeting. That'll be February 21st through 23rd. Uh, it's going to be held in Safety Harbor, Florida. Registration information is available on yellowbuses.org. You can go to the meeting navigation bar and find out all information on the NSTA midwinter meeting. Once again, go to yellowbuses.org, look for the navigation bar that spells out NSTA meetings, and you'll get all the information you need by going to midwinter meeting. Now, we're so pleased to welcome back to the bus stop, and I think it's her fourth time here with us, Regina Phelps. She's founder of Emergency Management and Safety Solutions, and that's a consulting company specializing in crisis management and business continuity planning. And she's also an author. So if you want to see her books, you can go to Amazon and, and look them over. So welcome back to NSTA, the bus stop, Regina. Kurt, it's such a pleasure to be back. Now, I have one question, though. Am I still the, the most brought back speaker that you've had at number four? You are. We had some people tie you in the interim since the last time you've been on. But now you've once again <laughs> surged ahead and you are now our most frequent guest, if you will. <laughs> well, you made my day. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, Kurt, but thank you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, when this is all said and done, we're going to have you back one more time just to go over old times, for old times' sake. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. I love that. That's great. Yeah. 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 So now, you, you know, I think the first time we had John was way back in February, and we had just heard of this concept, coronavirus. But we did go to get down to brass tacks and talked about the impending crisis that was heading our way. Obviously, we've traveled a lot of ground since then. But maybe, Regina, can start with the current landscape with respect to the pandemic. Well, you know, I, of course, um, I wish I had good news to report to you. And, and doesn't February seem like just like a million years ago in some ways? Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I guess the bad news is, Kurt, is that I have really no good news to report when I am asked to talk about the current status in the United States. We still remain the country with the most cases and the most deaths. We have 102,000 people hospitalized across the United States right now, putting tremendous pressure on the healthcare system and increasingly in rural parts of the United States, which have limited capacity for ICU beds and overall uh, staffing. So that, I think, is going to continue to be a crisis that will evolve over the next 90 days. Our case counts have been varying between 180 and 210 plus uh, on a daily basis. And we still have yet to feel the surge that is our post-Thanksgiving hospital surge, which you should start seeing in the next five days or so. I guess the when you ask me about the overall status, uh, what I would say, Kurt, is that it is not good and it's not going to be good for most of the winter. And so I would beg all of your listeners to take this as serious as you possibly can. And by that, I would say, if you can stay home, please stay home whenever that's possible. Avoid crowds, avoid being with people outside of your bubble, inside a building. Wear a mask when you're out all the time and also make sure that you are physically distanced. I mean, that's the same thing we've been talking about since, I don't know, a long time, February. But it's it's yeah. even more critical now. Okay. Yeah. Then thanks. Thanks for that advice, and I'm sure everybody will will listen, you know, intently about that. Now, one area, and there, this has been so much information going around that it's hard to separate fact from fiction. But one area, especially within our industry, 
that's causing much controversy is the standing of children as transmitters of COVID-19. And, you know, people are reading various things on this. So I just think as a, you know, an outline, what's your take on children as transmitters of uh, the coronavirus? Mm -hmm. So as you said, Kurt, the information has evolved and changed. And one of the things I would say to your listeners is that uh, it's if you go back and look back in February, what we knew then, what we knew in the summer and what we know now has changed and evolved. And I would just say, first of all, is that doesn't mean that people are changing their minds. It's just that we're figuring out this virus. Remember, it's only existed for not even a year. And so the studies and the understanding about transmission is still a work in progress. So. The early data going back to the K through 12 schools did not really confirm that students were bringing it into the classroom and creating Petri dishes. So there has been a problem, though, because we don't really have a good standardized national database of infections and what's going on in the schools. And so that would be a big help. And I'm hoping in the Biden administration that they're going to make that a priority so we can really deeply understand what's happening in the schools. But there's been several studies I just want to just take a moment to talk about. One of them was Brown University, and they looked at 47 states over uh, the last two weeks of this month of September. And among about 200,000 students and 63,000 staff, so, you know, a quarter of a million people there who had gone back to school, they found that the infection rate was really small on students, 0.13 uh, percent. And in staff was about 0.24 double that. Now, the thing is, we haven't seen really what you would call those super spreader events that are school related. Now, there have been events uh, where there have been parties after school, gatherings after school, where children have been together, maybe at somebody's home or gone to a birthday party or something like that. And those have created super spreader events, but not actually those uh, events in classrooms. Now, the other thing I would say to you is that kids Actually, the question that there was a lot of debate about is how much virus do kids actually have in their respiratory system? And there was a Duke study that found that kids, actually children, carry a lot of virus actually in their respiratory systems, but they don't transmit it as easily as adults. And maybe that's Maybe that's because they're just not generating that kind of aerosol. And I don't know if it's because perhaps they just don't have that development in their airway systems, or maybe they're not screaming and talking loudly enough, which is what they would need to do to get it out. But they have a lot of virus in their airways, but they're not transmitting it effectively. And perhaps uh, the other thing about children that's also interesting medically is they don't cough or sneeze or have as many difficulty breathing issues as adults do with COVID. And so they often have very mild symptoms or sometimes no symptoms at all. Now, what's also interesting and that I think your, your listeners should be very aware of is that in cases of schools where children were physically distanced, wore masks, and where there was very good hand hygiene, the studies have shown that those areas, those schools have very limited transmission. And there was a lot of concern about kids not being able to do that. But it turns out, you know, they can. And so what I would say is that depending, of course, what happens in this winter surge, I would expect many schools will not uh, reopen until after January. And then, of course, it will really depend on what's happening in their community. But schools should strongly consider masking, physical distancing, and major emphasis on hand hygiene, and they have a greater chance 
of being able to get those kids back into the classroom. Yeah, and that really aligns with a lot of what we've seen with respect to student transportation, masks, physical distancing, as well as uh, also, you know, the hand hygiene, which, you know, in some platforms, and I, I think in New York, they had to really adjust some regulations because of the alcohol content in right. hand sanitizer, right. To, right. you know, to allow folks to at least bring, you know, their own personal hand sanitizer, you know, on the bus. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think student transportation is adapting, you know, to all the things that you outline. And I think that's, that's great, you know, give, given the fact that that's what the, you see in the overall landscape as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one area that does give us all hope is the idea that a COVID-19 vaccine is on the horizon. And we just saw the first person get vaccinated in the UK. I guess the question, this is a pretty blunt question. Is the vaccine reason for optimism? Ah, that's, you know, that's a fabulous question, Kurt. And let me just say to you, first of all, yes, it is. It, there's a great reason for optimism. And, and when you stop and think about it, we have never had a vi- uh, vaccine that has been produced this rapidly that has been this effective. And so, yes, there's a lot of reason for optimism. So let me just talk about a couple of key things. Now, what I want to talk about is that the two vaccines that are currently uh, before the FDA, in fact, this week they're meeting on the first one, the Pfizer one, that one has a variety of storage-related issues. So it is it requires a minus 70 to minus 80 storage. Uh, there aren't a lot of freezers that are minus 70 or minus 80, like Walgreens or CVS or places like that. So there's a huge effort now to try and deal with these transportation storage as well as a variety of other issues in the administration of the vaccine. So, yes, it's great that we're having this vaccine out. And we need to understand that because of of all of the supply chain issues from the moment the vaccine is produced and it gets in your arm is not going to be quick. And let me just explain some of the things that you need to be thinking about. We have all of these issues related to supply chains. So that includes storage, also vials and syringes. There's a worldwide shortage of those. There is transportation requirements from the moment it's produced to the time it gets to your arm. It requires two shots. Both the Pfizer and the Moderna shots both require two. That means there has to be sufficient tracking and people have to get two. Otherwise, it will not sufficiently give you immunity. So there needs to be patient tracking effectiveness. Then there also has to be the staffing of the individuals to administer the vaccine. So those are a lot of big issues right there. Now, of course, there's also the supply of the vaccine and that's going to roll out. I mean, they're talking about millions of doses being available in January, but remember there's two doses. So when you see 100 million or 50 million, you're really talking about 50% of that. So those are all challenges that need to be discovered and, and dealt with. The other thing I would say to you is that By the time the average person gets a shot in their arm, I think all of us should realistically be thinking it will be sometime in the summer and maybe even the fall. So what does that mean for our lives? I think you need to understand that we have to have 70% plus herd immunity, which means 70% vaccinated people, vaccinated, not sick, but vaccinated people. And so that means that it's going to take a while for that to happen. If there's a lot of people who don't take the vaccine, that will increase that issue across the the United States and the world for that matter. So that means that you might get vaccinated, Kirk, but you still have to wear a mask. You still have to physically distance. You still have to have great hand hygiene until 
we get to a really high level of immunity. So your lives aren't going to change markedly until maybe the end of next year or maybe even the beginning of 2023. And I think if people look at it from that perspective, they will be happier. When I hear many physicians saying that, you know, the the light is at the end of the tunnel and the vaccines are coming out, the life is going to go back to normal. They don't sort of give you that whole long view. And so my concern right. about that, that kind of messaging is that's going to make people frustrated when they realize they don't, when they get their second shot, that they just can't go back to life as usual. Yeah, so true. Now, we talked before we got on air about uh, NSTA testifying before the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices a couple of weeks back. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we emphasized the need for school bus drivers being part of phase 1B of the phase schedule for the uh, vaccine. But uh, I mean, overall, even if we get placed in into phase 1B, this type of widespread distribution, if I'm correct, has not really been attempted previously. So, I mean, what do you see? I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but what do you see as the challenges of the process too? Yeah, to I do think this? That, yeah, you know, I think your your comment about that we haven't seen it before. Well, we have, but it's been a long time, polio, right? <laughs> I mean, right. you know, that was a long, long, long time ago. So, but nothing certainly uh, in the storage and the challenges of this particular vaccine. So, I think what you're going to find now just to just to, so you know that the national government, the federal government, the FDA will uh, we'll make a recommendation to the states about who should get vaccinated when. But the states have the authority and the right to decide th- if they want a different list. So the first thing I would say to you is that just because you end up maybe in the 1B categorization as bus drivers, you still have to maybe fight for that at the state level because the states aren't required to do those phases. They're encouraged, but they're not required. So I think the first level is that your organization and, and others that are involved in and in wanting to make sure that they're in, in those early categories are going to have to not only really uh, lobby the government at the federal level, but at the state level as well. Then the other thing is that remember when the vaccines begin to grow out, the state will make the determination of who in this, where in the state vaccines are going. So again, there's a real importance that your local communities, your school boards and other folks are probably going to have to do some clamoring, perhaps, to make sure that they are going to be recognized and uh, and their area and their communities will be getting that vaccine. It will go initially to large areas where storage will not be a problem, but then it has to be disseminated out. So I would just say to all of your listeners that local, small, rural communities are going to have to be really organizing to make sure that they're going to have the 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 abilities to manage this vaccine when it gets to their areas, as well as make sure that they are lobbying for school teachers and bus drivers, et cetera, to be uh, on that short list. So it's a it's a process that's going to be replicated throughout the United States. Every community is going to have to be clamoring, if you will, to make sure that they are going to be in that 1B category and secondarily that their community, their Department of Public Health is working closely with the state to make sure that they are going to have those things in place so when those shots arrive that they're going to be able to be stored properly, et cetera, as well as administered to your bus drivers and teachers in the schools. Now, interestingly enough, so the listeners don't think that this was a setup, uh, we did advise (laughs) everyone to also write to their concurrently as we were 
lobbying at the national level, you know, before the CDC to also write their governor about this issue and deployment for the bus drivers. So the fix wasn't in, folks. Regina just uh, <laughs> amplified our original message, and we thank you for that, uh, uh, Regina, because uh, we try to be forward thinking at NSTA, and, and I think in this case we, we were. I, I think the interesting thing that I've also heard in um, listening to the uh, ACIP deliberations is this growing groundswell of folks who are not going to take the vaccine for a variety of reasons. And and I'm sure you've heard of that too. What do you have to say to these folks? Because one of, you know, the key points of our messaging is going to be, hey, hey, listen, we all have to do this for it to be effective. And I think you alluded to that previously. So what, what do you have to say to folks who are reluctant to vaccinate? Yeah, you know, I think what I would say to anybody who has a concern about vaccination is, first of all, look at the science. Secondarily, look at the impact uh, and the illness that COVID-19 causes. Look at the deaths that's occurred. And also look at the impact of that disease for folks who get the illness. And perhaps they even have mild symptoms, but they actually have an autoimmune response, which is what you're hearing now about a disease called long haulers. And long haulers are individuals who have a variety of really significant illnesses that may or may not go away. These are often an autoimmune disease caused by the inflammation of the virus. And that can be things such as protracted shortness of breath, tachycardia, which is a fast racing heart, uh, inability to even walk from, you know, your couch to the front door. So incredible fatigue, muscle aches, And some of these people have been having these really sustained and serious uh, symptoms since they uh, were diagnosed. And some people, it's been months. So this is not an illness that you might say, oh, gosh, it's just a cold. It's an actual serious medical illness. Also think about the people that you are surrounding yourself around. So if you have older family members, friends, people with significant comorbidities such as obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, If we don't get enough of a herd immunity, 70 plus individuals in this country, we are going to be living this way with a mask, physically distanced for a very long time, Kurt. And so I think what people need to do is they need to look at the death toll, the illness impact, the impact on society, and realize that we are all in this together. And if we don't all kind of join hands, of course, physically distanced, (laughs) we're going to be in trouble for a long time. So I would really ask people to reconsider their their thoughts about vaccination. Yeah, physically distanced, holding hand, and um, <laughs> right. as, as sanitized effectively as well. Absolutely. So, Regina, always so much great information. I learned so much when we do these podcasts. So I thank you for joining us at NSTA, the bus stop. I wish you a very happy holiday season. And hopefully next time we talk, you know, more things are in the rebound, you know, for the country. But uh, thanks for joining us again, Regina. Once again, our guest, Gina Phelps, she's founder of EMS Solutions and an author. So go check her books out, P-H-E-L-P-S, Phelps, at Amazon.com. So, Regina, thanks for joining us at the bus stop. Kurt, thanks so much for having me again, and happy holidays to you. And next time, maybe we'll have better news to report. Take care. (laughs) 